The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. The purpose of the American food industry seems pretty straightforward. Feed our country's population. However, our industrialized food system, specifically industrial animal agriculture, is incredibly ineffective. We dump around $38 billion in subsidies into the meat and dairy industries. To put this into context, only around $14 million go toward fruits and vegetables. And yet one in six people in the US go to bed hungry every night. So why is it that our government is choosing to devote so much money towards producing animal products? Well, in this episode, I speak with David Simon, lawyer, sustainable consumption advocate, and author of the book, Meatonomics, to get some more insight. In our chat, we get into the externalized costs of the meat industry, specifically the burden on taxpayers, the environment, and of course, animals that keep this mega industry afloat. As a lawyer, David is also well-versed in the ridiculous laws used to protect against whistleblowers and really anyone who criticizes the meat industry. I might not be an expert in math or economics, but after my chat with David, I've come to the conclusion that the dying industrial meat and dairy industries in America just do not add up. I'm here with David Simon, lawyer and author of the book Meatonomics, which discusses how the rigged economics of the meat and dairy industry makes Americans consume too much. David, thanks for being on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Hi, uh, Neil. Thanks uh, to you. It's a pleasure to uh, to participate. Great. So your book, I think, does a really brilliant job at meticulously breaking down the insane politics behind the meat and dairy industry. And, you know, I find this topic particularly fascinating, not because I'm an economics nerd, in fact, far from it. Uh, I find it interesting because when we were starting One Green Planet about four years ago, one of the key things that I had in mind behind our editorial strategy was the basic economic principle of demand and supply. That if you could convince people in America and hopefully around the world to consume less industrial meat and dairy and consume more plant-based foods or increase the demand for plant-based foods, we could potentially trigger some sort of a chain reaction in uh, the food industry where the supply for healthy, sustainable uh, plant-based foods would uh, and sustainable and, and healthier foods would increase over the years. Now, while that may seem like a bit of a naive and idealistic point of view, some of that has happened in the last few years, as um, our listeners and as, as well as you probably know, uh, where the plant-based industry and has started to uh, grow faster than we could have imagined. The plant-based milk sector specifically is starting to shake up the dairy industry, and there's a lot of innovation starting to happen in the plant-based protein space specifically. Um, but, and here's where I have to put on my pragmatist hat, there's a big but here, the system we're up against is massive, and it's pretty rotten to the core, where we have a system designed to artificially increase um, supply and demand 
um, so that people keep consuming industrial meat and dairy that keeps the wheels of this uh, massive factory farming system turning. And in today's conversation, I'm hoping to dive deeper into understanding some of the basics of this messed up system and and hopefully if we were to change it, what would that look like? So I'm going to start with, you know, back to demand and supply. Let's start with demand. I'd like to get your thoughts on how the meat and dairy industry specifically have managed to keep Americans obsessed with animal protein and what is uh, what do checkoff programs, for example, have to do with that? Well, that's a great question. So, so let me let me take the first part of that first, and then and then we'll talk about checkoff programs. There's a very basic uh, principle in economics called the law of demand. The law of demand says that as retail prices for a good decline, consumption of that good increases. And we've all seen this happen in our lives. If something goes on sale, uh, we're more likely to buy it or to buy more of it than we would otherwise. Animal food producers have taken advantage of, of this law in a, in, a, in a very significant way. And they have uh, used this principle to uh, cause Americans to buy much more meat and dairy than we would over the course of decades by keeping the prices of meat and dairy artificially low. Uh, they've done that by predominantly externalizing the costs of these goods, shifting the production costs away from their factory farms and onto the backs of taxpayers and consumers. That has allowed them to charge much lower retail prices for these goods than they would have had to otherwise. The way that checkoff programs play into this for people who are not aware of checkoff programs, these are the programs that bombard us through all advertising media, internet, magazine ads, bus ads, television, radio, with messages that, that say things like beef, it's what's for dinner, milk life, uh, pork, the other white meat, pork be inspired. And there are many, many of them. Uh, the incredible edible egg was one that I still remember the jingle for from decades ago. and consumers respond to these ads by buying more of those goods. So, so producers have sort of this uh, double whammy or even triple whammy if you factor in some other things that they're doing where they're keeping retail prices low and with the support of the federal government, they are messaging us with these checkoff ads to get us to, to buy even more of these products than we would otherwise. So essentially, it's the meat and dairy hype machine that um, uses funds from the checkoff program to then funnel that into research as well as marketing, which one keeps touting the benefits of certain uh, meats, like you said, beef or uh, pork or otherwise, and also to a certain extent have over the years given people the idea of happy cows, for example. Um, and what what i think is what i'd love to hear a little bit more about is how how is research play a role in this i know people may know about the marketing and some of the advertising that you've seen but how about uh studies that tout the health benefits of uh dairy for example or or meat well as you point out checkoff programs fund both marketing and research Sometimes this research is into uh, relatively boring uh, issues like how to increase productivity uh, in a factory farm, but, but often it's in areas such as uh, comparing health benefits of uh, various kinds of animal foods, typically to each other. Often the studies will do things like compare a low fat version with a high fat version there are some studies that look at the health benefits of chocolate milk. Invariably, these studies, because they're funded by industry, they uh, <laughs> tend to favor industry in their uh, research results. And there is a, there is a substantial body uh, of research that shows that, not surprisingly, industry-funded research typically comes out on the side of industry. If, if a study comes out that, that isn't favorable to industry, 
typically uh, its sponsors have the right to just kill that study so it doesn't get published. Um, and often these studies are designed in ways that make them very misleading. So for example, you'll see studies that compare a high fat version of a food with a low fat version uh, and, conc and conclude that saturated fat is not necessarily unhealthy. But what they don't include in the study is any comparison to a plant-based protein, which would show almost without doubt that when, when you compare, say, a plant-based diet and a non-plant-based diet, the saturated fat in the non-plant-based diet is unhealthy and is likely to cause people to develop diseases like heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. Yeah, so I mean, I think it, it's it's um, it's fascinating how all of this has been happening for years without most people even un having any clue who's behind them. And some of these ideas then start to seep into what we come to understand as our cultural mindset around meat and dairy, which I think, you know, we can keep trying to fight against. And I think it's a worthy fight. And I think you need to um, encourage people to choose plant-based foods and healthier options. But most Americans believe they need meat and dairy. They believe that meat and dairy is uh, an essential part of um, their diets. So I think another thing that's happened over the years, especially when it comes to activists, is trying to uncover the realities of the meat and dairy industry. And I think here's where industrial meat and dairy especially has managed to effectively hide what really goes on behind these uh, walls of factory farms. And I, I'd I know you're a lawyer too, so I'm, and I, I think your book especially covers this really well, where it talks about how over several years, this industry has managed to basically take away the effectiveness of any anti-cruelty laws in the United States, or at least have them somehow exempted from farm animals. Um, and also talk a little bit more about things like food disparagement laws and cheeseburger laws and what that even means. And how in with very smart lawyering, or I think really good lobbying really, they've managed to at least over the few, at least for some amount of time managed to convince people that there is no problem and we can legislate our way out of um preventing people from um um or we can legislate our way into preventing people from accessing what really goes on in these uh factories really right so um you mentioned a number of different kinds of laws and this is this is sort of the third part of the triple whammy that animal food producers use to uh, control consumer behavior and consumer uh, perspective on the industry. So, uh, sort of the most the most troubling, I think, for many people is this idea of customary farming exemptions. Here's how those work: every state in the country has a anti-cruelty statute that prohibits cruelty to animals and they're worded differently but but the general intent is always the same that that um, people are not allowed to to behave in behave in activity that is cruel to animals or at least unnecessarily cruel to animals however every state also has an exemption from that statute for farmed animals in 37 states, these exemptions are statutory. That is, le the legislature in the state has actually passed a law that says farm animals are exempt. And in the other 13 states, they've just been adopted through the process of judicial decision making that, that we typically call the common law. So in all 50 states, there is a carve out that says farmed animals are not protected by the state's anti-cruelty statute to the extent that a particular behavior uh, done by farmers is customary. So all that means is, is if enough farmers get together and decide that it's expedient for whatever reason to, for example, cut off some part of an animal's body, his beak, his tail, his genitals, his ears, whatever, then by definition, that behavior becomes not cruel 
and the farmers who engage in it uh, cannot be prosecuted for violating the state's anti-cruelty statute. That gives rise to the sort of wide range of very cruel practices that many of us uh, who have watched uh, any videos about this stuff have seen. And it includes things like gestation crates and de-beaking of chickens and castrating animals without anesthetic, uh, uh, cutting off animals' tails without anesthetic, dehorning animals, again, without anesthetic, uh, close confinement, keeping chickens in battery cages, uh, and, and other practices that uh, it's, it's easy to look at and say, that that is just incredibly cruel. And yet, as a matter of law, it's not. And, and producers are allowed to engage in those behaviors. Wow. So, I mean, I think you have a really good quote in your book. Um, Nothing is illegal if you get 100 businessmen to decide on it, which uh, from right. Andrew Young, which I find very telling. I mean, it, at the end of the day, we've as long as an industry, if you can somehow prove that this is part of um, it's part of business as usual. Um, and if your business is um, raising animals and turning them into meat, then, uh, well, I think sort of anything is fair game. And I think that's the part where it seems all logical and common sense, but most people don't go that far to even think about it. So you know, that's really interesting and, I, and unfortunate. But uh, if you look beyond that, I, I think what's also started to happen over the years is as people start to understand what's in industrial meat and dairy, um, what has the in, what have what has the industry done in response to that? Whether it's um, things like food disparagement laws, which I believe are in a quarter of the states in the U.S. right now, or even to the extent of um, ag gag laws and the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, how how effective has that been in keeping out activists? Um, and the general public. Uh, I mean, I think it hasn't been su so successful because you can still see those videos. Just YouTube has made that easy for us. But, you know, how successful has that been um, given given um, the fact that more people are now aware of what's going on? Well, uh, so let, let's, let's talk about those two laws in case people aren't aware of how they work. So uh, food disparagement laws... And as you said, we've got these in 13 states are laws that allow industry to bring a lawsuit against somebody who criticizes uh, a food category. And they're, they're based on the classic tort of defamation, which says that if um, a defendant says something that is untrue about a plaintiff and, and that is damaging to the plaintiff, uh, the plaintiff can recover damages. These laws expand that in a number of ways, one of which is to allow not just an individual plaintiff to bring a lawsuit, but to allow an industry group uh, to bring a lawsuit if it can show that statistically its sector earnings have declined as a result of something that somebody said. Uh, and another way that these laws expand the classic defamation suit is in the context of the media that uh, under classic defamation uh, legal theory is held to a standard that it's only liable if it engages in behavior that is mal malicious or intentional. That in the context of food disparagement laws, that standard is, lo is lowered to simply a negligence standard. So that if a plaintiff can show that a newspaper or a talk show was negligent in in defaming its food product, uh, it might recover damages against that defendant. These lawsuits, uh, these laws, I think do have a chilling effect. It, it can be difficult to, to, to understand the, the actual effect, but you know, we've seen, for example, in the case of Oprah Winfrey, who had to fight a vicious battle against the Texas Cattlemen's Beef Association about 20 years ago, she said she would never discuss that issue again publicly. She was sued for defaming beef um, under the Texas food disparagement law. Um, so they essentially silenced her. Uh, I've been contacted in my capacity as an attorney by um, people 
uh, writing books who are concerned that they might be sued uh, for violating food disparagement laws. But I think that there is some concern about these out there. And then, of course, the other category of law that, that you raised is uh, ag-gag laws. These are laws that criminalize uh, undercover investigations, essentially. We've now got these in eight U.S. states, and there are, there's sort of a constant battle at the state legislature level where industry continues to introduce these, and they continue to get debated. And uh, I think we just had one, a new one pass in Indiana uh, earlier this year. I think in the states where these uh, exist today as valid law, I do think that they have a, a massively chilling effect. Now, there is some cause for optimism as these laws are being challenged on constitutional grounds. One was just struck down in Idaho last year. Another is being challenged in Utah on the same basis. So I think that eventually we might see some or all of these laws get struck down because they violate the First Amendment or other constitutional protections. But in the meantime, I think they do have a chilling effect. Yeah, and going back to the food disparagement laws, was that the same under the same statute that uh, we had that recent lawsuit, um, which was settled, I believe, by ABC News regarding pink slime? Yeah, I'm not familiar with the details of that lawsuit, but that sounds like that, that sounds like the same concept. Yeah. Right. And then the only one we didn't really touch on, which I think is, you know, that the name itself uh, <laughs> raises eyebrows, the, the cheeseburger laws. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the history behind that, which I think is, is just a fascinating indication of, of an industry that kind of knows their products are not good. Right. So to... To discuss cheeseburger laws, it really helps if we start, if we take a step back and start with tobacco. And in the past three decades, US tobacco companies have paid out more than $400 billion to settle lawsuits brought by state, mostly by state Medicaid programs, alleging that the use of tobacco products caused the participants in, in state Medicaids uh, to uh, incur healthcare costs that the states had to pay for. As a result of those massive payouts uh, and on the heels of one unsuccessful lawsuit in New York against McDonald's, the food industry realized that they, they may be subject to some liability under theories similar to those that were advanced against the tobacco companies. So states, um, at least 25 states now have passed these cheeseburger laws that say that a plaintiff cannot recover against a food manufacturer, retailer, or distributor based on a theory that food made that plaintiff obese or contributed to an obesity-related disease. And they are these laws are specifically designed to prevent people from bringing lawsuits against, for example, McDonald's or other fast food restaurants based on a theory that, hey, I eat at McDonald's every day for, my, for most of my life, and now I weigh 400 pounds and I've got heart disease and diabetes, and it's McDonald's fault, and they should pay for that. Well, these laws prevent those lawsuits in the states where they exist. Right. And I mean, I can understand the industry's uh, um, drive to do that because it's shifting the responsibility to end consumers and saying you can't regulate everything. But then that brings us to sort of the other problem with, uh, with the industry, which is the bodies that we have, whether it's the FDA or the USDA, which is responsible for everything from food safety to labeling, they're, well, and you've covered that a lot in your book as well, they haven't done a really great job at doing their job. Um, and they seem to be in this weird uh, middle ground where they're telling people to eat healthy food and yet uh, making it very easy for people to eat unhealthy food. So maybe if you can talk a little bit more about how, like if for someone who has no idea what the FDA or the USDA does and the twisted politics behind the how corporations and lobbying interests influence um, both nutritional policy as well as um, in some ways, how does that tie to marketing of, of unhealthy foods to people um, and as it relates to obviously industrialized meat and dairy? 
the FDA and the USDA and, and most other state and federal agencies, I might add, but, but these two because are most interesting to us because, because they're involved in food distribution. These agencies are subject to uh, an economic phenomenon known as regulatory capture. And that means that uh, agencies that regulate a particular industry over time are subject to being captured by the, the private participants in that industry. And we see this very clearly at, at both FDA and USDA because these agencies are, are populated with personnel who uh, have worked uh, in industry. And there's, there's a, typically a revolving door of industry executives and lobbyists who come into an agency and then go back to industry. And then maybe they'll, later they'll come back in. Um, employees of Monsanto, you know, prior employees of Monsanto who now work at USDA. And it's not just that heavy uh, infiltration, I suppose, by industry personnel, but it's also a very confusing perspective on what these agencies' missions are. The USDA, for example, has a has a really conflicted miss, mission because on one hand, it it is charged with promotion of the agriculture industry in the United States, and its mission is to grow that industry, to increase its sales both domestically and abroad, and that's certainly a, a viable mission uh, as as citizens in this country, we want our industries to be healthy and to grow. But the USDA is also charged with providing advice to, to consumers about what to eat and how much of it to eat and how to plan their nutritional needs around the things that they're eating. And these two missions, on the one hand, giving nutritional advice to people, on the other hand, trying to promote the sale of things like meat and dairy that increasingly the research shows uh, are not nutritional, these two missions come into conflict in ways that are, that are confusing and troublesome for, for Americans. Right, and then on top of that, you have, um, you have the subsidies, which you know, going back to your first point about keeping prices low to increase demand, we obviously majority of government subsidies, I think in, you to point out of over 60% are going to fund the animal agriculture industry, at least industrialized animal agriculture. Um, has that, are the, you know, I know the farm bill is this thing that happens every few years that takes ages to negotiate and finalize. What's the current status of, 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 of subsidies and where the industry is moving in that direction? Well, animal agriculture continues to be heavily subsidized, although politicians complain about it all the time. I don't think anybody other than the industry itself is happy about it. The latest math that I did several years ago showed that in this country, we're subsidizing animal agriculture with about $38 billion in tax funds every year. And to put that in perspective, we're subsidizing fruits and vegetables with about $17 million, which is just a tiny, tiny fraction of, of what we're uh, providing to animal agriculture. These subsidies are just entrenched in our political system. And it's impossible to, to get them out. They're like barnacles. Uh, and yes, there, each new farm bill that comes out, there's a lot of talk about how we need to reduce or eliminate subsidies. And yet at the end of the day, we see very little real change occurring. Wow. So, you know, for, for anyone who's listening right now and is, is, is kind of uh, feeling uh, dejected and as uh, down as sort of I am at the moment listening to the current state of our, um, of our food industry, um, the, the thing is, there is good news, though, right? This, this, while there's a lot of doom and gloom, and I think... It was important for, for us to touch on the reality of where things are today. There are things that are starting to shift, although slowly, but starting to shift into the direction where we hopefully want them to. And like I pointed out earlier, I mean, there has been some progress over the last few years, especially since you know your book came out in, in 2013. And 
and while it's only been about four years, there there have been some encouraging signs. The fact that the plant-based milks now capture about eight to ten percent of uh, the dairy industry or that market, and when it comes to plant proteins, there's been a lot of innovations in the past few years. Um, it's still incredibly small in terms of the overall meat industry, and we still have a long, long way to go. But to what extent, from your understanding of where things stand, both from um, existing policies like checkoff programs and subsidies, existing regulatory bodies and the way they are structured, to these sort of laws that are just designed to hide what really goes on uh, in our current food industry, what are your what is your understanding of of where things stand today? Given that there are some positive signs, and to a certain extent, even the meat industry. Um, and the dairy industry are starting to respond and recognize that they are, you know, a they're, you know, it seems like they need to do something and their industry is broken, and b that there may be alternatives out there that consumers do want that are that could get make them as much money as they make now. So, do you see? I guess I'm looking for a silver lining here. Well, I. I think that uh, there definitely is a silver lining, and I agree with you. There's a lot of cause for optimism. In, in this country, we have seen um, meat consumption uh, per capita declining over the past few years uh, as people shift uh, gradually to plant-based diets or to incorporating plant-based proteins in their diets. The number of people uh, in the U.S. who say that they are uh, on a plant-based diet has increased. And I just saw uh, data yesterday that said that 6% of Americans today call themselves vegan. That's a, that's a significant increase. I think I remember, oh, 15 years ago or so, that number was about 2%, maybe 2.5%. So, so that number is increasing substantially. I like to look at the example of tobacco because I think that the meat and dairy industries in the U.S. are in roughly the same place today as the U.S. tobacco industry was in in about 1950. In 1950 in this country there were magazine ads for example by Chesterfield's cigarettes that said things like nine out of ten doctors say uh, Chesterfields is the right cigarette for them. And it took, it took a long time institutionally for the medical community to get behind the idea that consuming tobacco products is bad for people's health. And I think today we are just at the beginning of seeing the medical community in the US start to understand that consuming meat and dairy isn't good for us the way we've been told for decades, but in fact, it's bad for us, particularly at the very high levels that, that uh, Americans consume these goods. So I think what I expect to happen over the next few decades is that as the medical community increasingly gets behind this idea that these foods are bad for us, just the way it did back in the 50s and 60s with respect to tobacco, that eventually that medical perspective will drive policymaking and then we will start to see changes in the in the legal and regulatory environment we should start to see better oversight at agencies like fda and usda we should start to see better lawmaking at the state and federal level and maybe we'll even see a meat tax uh, because the, the the taxes that state and federal governments have imposed on tobacco over the last five six decades have been instrumental in in helping to reduce tobacco consumption in this country. Yeah, and then the goal at the end of the day is at least to reduce consumption. The bigger problem is that we are consuming way too much in this country, and the and I guess the form of of um, of protein that we're consuming is probably the worst kind. And I'm sure even in talking about tobacco and cigarettes, there were probably there were attempts to make safer cigarettes or cigarettes that wouldn't you know lead to cancer and other problems and the difference here is there are potentially safer alternatives that um, provide you with the same amount of nutrition without 
the negative impacts and that do present a viable option for people who are looking to consume you know dense protein um, in a way, in a form that resembles what they're used to from um, from an animal source so do you think that and I think you seem to be pointing out that the health is going to be the biggest driver. Do you see that's where the shift is coming from? What about you know folk people who will say that we um, we can we can grow grass? I mean, we can raise grass-fed animals that have a better nutritional profile, and that inherently there is nothing wrong with meat or um, saturated fat. Although that you know the the scientific evidence in that keeps changing every day. Um, what do you think is your um, your what are your views on on better meat or better forms of organic dairy? Uh, one from a health standpoint and broadly from even an environmental standpoint, do you think they're better? And even if they are, do you think we can still consume the amount we're consuming today? Well, from a from a health standpoint, I think there's probably very, very little difference between the organic forms of these foods and the non-organic forms. I mean, the the organic food foods obviously won't won't have things like um, added hormones and steroids in them, but there's there's really very little uh, clinical literature to suggest that that those particular things uh, are as bad for people as just the fundamental components of animal foods. Uh, Animal-based protein is found conclusively to be a carcinogen. The World Health Organization lists processed meat as a class one carcinogen. That is a a, a good that is known to be carcinogenic when consumed by humans. And it, it also lists all red meat as a class two carcinogen. Uh, that is something that is likely to cause cancer when consumed by humans. And that doesn't differentiate between organic or inorganic. That's, you know, if you buy the organic hot dogs or the organic bacon, you can be 100% certain that is carcinogenic. Uh, and so yeah, I think from a health perspective, there's, there's really very little to be gained by eating the organic versions of these foods. From, from an ethical perspective, there's also very little to be gained. Um, the, the, the most organically raised meat and dairy in this country today is raised in a factory farm environment, which means for the most part, these animals are subjected to uh, many of the cruel behaviors that we find in uh, with customary farming exemptions. Now there is, a, the USDA has adopted some regulations that may change some of that for organically raised animals. But but in general, uh, from an ethical perspective, I see very little difference between organic and inorganically farming animals. Yeah, and then I guess the sustainability argument. I think that's one when you know, and I have I try to. I try to have a very balanced view on this because I think uh, it's important for people to realize there are ways you can potentially, I may be against it personally and not in favor of it, but um, that there are ways where you can graze animals, uh, whether it's regenerative agriculture and the focus there in, in preserving the soil, that it can be done with less of an environmental impact. I can't say no because all food has environmental impact, whether it's... Um, it's vegetables or, or you know, legumes or, or dairy. So perhaps you can do it better. And uh, uh, for people who do want to consume meat, then if they and sustainability is a factor or the primary factor, then perhaps that's, that could be an option for them. But even if that were the case, if we could magically wave a, a magic wand and, and take away all the factory farms which are contributing 95 to 99% of the meat in this country, and turn them into um, uh, these smaller uh, family farms, we, there's no way we can meet the demand, right? So, I mean, let's go back to the pure economics of this. How can you feed the current appetite for meat and dairy, even if we were to get rid of factory farms? Do you think, uh, do you have any views on that and how that's even possible? All of the research that I've seen and the independent calculations that I've done show pretty conclusively that it is impossible 
to raise uh, sufficient quantities of animal foods to, to meet demand, particularly in the United States, but, but additionally in other industrialized countries, if you're trying to do that in any environment other than a factory farm. In other words, you know, these uh, so-called sustainable or small family-owned farms, uh, they, I, you know, on one level, I sort of admire the objective. Um, they raise a few, say, 100,000 pounds of, of uh, product per year that they sell to, you know, consumers who drive up and fill up their trunk or something. But it, they're supplying a statistically insignificant portion of the overall total. In this country, we've got over 300 million people consuming something like 200 pounds per capita of meat per year. You just cannot raise all that in these sort of precious family environments. It just doesn't work. The, the, the math doesn't, doesn't support it. And one of the things I looked at is if we wanted to do that just in Southern California, we would need to have farms covering eight out of nine counties uh, in Southern California just to supply the needs of the 30 million people or so who live down there. So I just don't see that that happening. Right. So I guess the, the general rule that people need to keep in mind is that, you know, even if you if you do choose to support um, those smaller farms and if you do think um, that that is a better way to do um, to produce meat, at least today, that you if you look at the bigger picture, you, there's no way we can feed the country with that at the moment or anytime in the near future without using up more land or or creating a new system that would be equally destructive to the environment. And then, of course, that's not even getting into the health issue, really, or the ethics of it, which is which I think are separate issues. Um, that's so right. so I think, you know, if, if that's this is this is the point, I think more, most people don't understand. They think of it as a as a, you know, you're either a vegan or you're a meat eater. And I think there are some, um, there's a lot of gray in between where people can agree that even if you do choose to eat meat, you need to eat less of it. And I think if everyone did that, uh, we would be much better off from a health standpoint, environmentally definitely, and well, I guess less animals would be impacted. So I think that's what's missing with the conversation today. And, and hopefully... And I hopefully the industry starts to to shift in that direction um, as people become more aware of what's happening, no matter uh, how hard the meat and dairy industry tries to hide the realities of the way that food food is produced today. So you know, I'd love to get your your views on one more thing, really, which is if we were to shift away from this industrialized system, whether it's with the help of uh, these smaller uh, farms that are raising animals or grazing them, whether it's with as a result of that and the rise in innovative plant-based proteins or perhaps even cultured meat, which there's been a lot of talks about that and some companies and um, researchers talking about products coming out as, as, as early as 2018 or maybe 2020, if you're less optimistic. What will the future look like, in your view, if we can, uh, if you were to write Meatonomics 2.0, which is, you know, a more of a optimistic book, talking about the future food system and the economics of meat, which is now comprised of primarily plant-based, cultured, clean meat, plus perhaps some um, locally organic, uh, regenerative. Um, uh, grass-fed meat out there. What would that, what would that system look like, and how can we even get there, and how soon can we get there? Well, I I would guess that let's let's what let's guess that let's let's pick a, a random date of say twenty thirty, which is thirteen years out. If I had to guess, I would say that in twenty thirty, we will see in in industrialized countries both US uh, and Europe and other uh, you know western countries we will we will see a significant shift away from plant-based proteins to uh, from animal-based proteins to plant-based proteins i think we'll we'll start to see regulatory changes such as meat taxes adopted in some countries we've already seen these proposed in in some countries like Sweden UK Denmark 
Uh, the United Nations has even discussed the idea of a meat tax. And, and I think that because we tax undesi socially undesirable goods like tobacco, alcohol, and oil, gasoline, we will start to tax meat uh, and dairy because we will recognize that they're bad for our health and we want to reduce consumption of them. And I think that this combination of medical recognition, policy recognition, shift in, in dietary patterns will result in reduced consumption. I think we'll probably see uh, a, a concomitant rise in uh, success and proliferation of these smaller farms that are uh, arguably more sustainable. And in fact, if Americans reduced our consumption by 50% or more, uh, it, would be, it would be viable to have far fewer factory farms and to raise animals on, on smaller family farms. And while many don't see that as a, as a complete or 100% you know, solution, uh, I think it would be a great start. Yeah, and I think the encouraging sign is that that's where we seem to be um, heading to. And but the problem is, if you look at the current food system, there's no signs of that. I mean, there's maybe some small signs of that, but at least from a policy standpoint, you look at even the, um, I think the recent fight with the dairy industry trying to limit plant-based milks from using the word milk to describe, to label their products, to me, all just seems like a completely pointless fight at this point um i mean consumer habits are changing people are learning more about the health impacts of the food they're eating they are more curious about how their food is manufactured and and as we improve the distribution systems which i think is a bigger problem in this country where we can bring this healthy food to places that only have access to mcdonald's perhaps or buying a head of lettuce is more expensive than getting a big mac then perhaps we will reach a point where we can we can even question whether the you know where, where we can actually see the industry start to change so i i just find that the the some of the fights that are going on right now and i'm let me know if you agree are kind of futile i mean they're going to lead to nothing down the line they may have some small victories but in the long run they're going to have to either acquire plant-based milk companies which some of the dairy industry is doing um, or um, or invest in them, and that's the only way they'll stay in business. Well, I I agree with you. I mean, and and if, for example, Tyson Foods, which is one of the world's largest producers of of uh, animal foods, has invested in Beyond Meat, which is a plant based uh, uh, organization. And I, you know, they're definitely reading the writing on the wall. I I think that's probably a wise move, and I. You know, I, I certainly think that that's the direction that we're headed. Yeah, I would. I, I think I just gave you your second book idea. If you have, <laughs> if you didn't have one already, I think you should focus on what will the future, uh, the economics of the food system look like once we have all these little components in place. Because someone's going to have to start thinking about it. Um, and you know, the better, the best way to make something happen is to is to do it, <laughs> and to imagine Absolutely. it yourself. Um, that's right. And I couldn't think of anyone who would be more qualified to even even start working and writing on that. So, you know, I think that's the that's a great point we're at right now, where if you look at the current system, it's broken. But if you if you start to see the momentum that's starting to build within the food industry, within uh, startups, within um, within even consumers or uh, who, who are who are just more informed and who care more than they did 10, 15 years ago because they know more. And if that can lead us down this path where by 2030 or eventually by 2050, we, we don't have to learn about the, the politics or the economics of, of, of the food industry and, and get depressed and instead, you know, hopefully feel proud of what we've done, then I think, um, then I think the work that you've done with your previous book and and, and the work that I think hopefully you're going to continue to do while, by talking about these issues will, will, will all amount to something, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I'll, you know, I'll close with, um, you know, how do you plan to stay involved um, in spreading these ideas, uh, working in this space? I know you are you know, still a full-time lawyer as well. 
which I think is commendable how you managed to balance that and stay passionate um, about this very complicated and ever-evolving issue. So where do you see your role uh, in crafting this future in the years ahead, uh, uh, besides taking my recommendation on writing a second book? <laughs> well, I'll definitely uh, consider that recommendation. I, I continue to to stay active and, and promote the ideas of metonomics. Uh, I just got back from a two-week tour in Australia where I spoke in seven cities. I continue to do podcasts like this. Uh, I also, as, as a lawyer, I have a, a practice devoted to um, advocating for animals. So I've got uh, active cases today that challenge animal abuse in, in various forms, and I'll continue to stay active there. Uh, and as you as you suggest, uh, there's a good chance that I'll write another book in the next uh, couple years here uh, as I as I sit down and focus on it. Great. No, I think there's a lot out there that that I uh, that that someone needs to cover. So I, I seem to be driving home that point. But uh, but I think what you're doing is amazing, especially focusing on your legal work at the same time, helping with um some of the animal uh, litigation out there, the animal rights and welfare litigation out there, plus uh, your continuing advocacy um, in this space using hard data, research, and facts, which which tend to get lost sometimes when you talk about something that that can have uh, you know can seem sentimental. At the end of the day, you we're trying to we're trying to transform this this cruel, destructive industry. Um, and of course, you know, I'm not hiding the fact that I don't support it with my personal choices and I encourage more and more people not to do that. And I know you do the same. But at the end of the day, what we're saying makes sense. It's common sense. These are the facts. The system is broken. It's unsustainable. It's terrible for people's health. And it's, of course, terrible for the animals that are stuck in those um, disgusting factory farms today. So we need to start working on that solution. And I think the work you're doing is is definitely part of that and part of a, a larger ecosystem of people that are working in, uh, in fixing this problem. So I applaud you for your work. And I, once again, thank you for taking the time to, um, to chat with us today. And uh, I look forward to following the amazing work you're doing and, uh, and keep an eye out for that uh, new book that comes out at some point. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you very much for, for uh, speaking to me today, Neil. And, and thank you also for all the great work that you're doing uh, through your organization as well. Yeah, we all try. But at the end of the day, if we can, uh, going back to my basic economics 101 that I know, if we can uh, increase demand for better food, uh, we will give rise to a new industry that will supply that food. And by virtue of that, we will hopefully transform this uh, entire mess that we have today into something to be proud of in 13 or maybe at least uh, next 20 years that's the goal well thank you david <laughs> okay thanks a lot neil you've been listening to eat for the planet with neil zacharias if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support please subscribe to the show and leave a review on apple podcasts to learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.